Today's teaching text comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give the person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Um, we are uh, making our way through Lent. I hope it is going really, really well and that it is uh, an inspiring and blessed time for you. Spring is on its way. Um, I see the temperatures slowly gaining over the next few weeks, and uh, I'm certainly excited. Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. There is a need in human existence to make sense of our lives in this world, to find meaning, to find meaning in our relationships, in the pain and the suffering, to find meaning in the victories and the setbacks, the human search for meaning. Without exception, every human being finds a construct, either consciously or maybe subconsciously, by which we derive meaning from the world around us or in the world around us. 
Christians specifically believe that God revealed his intent, his true story of creation, the meaning he had for creation in the revelation of Jesus Christ as told in our holy scriptures. So every effort to commune with each other as we engage with the scriptures, whether it be you watching this sermon or whether it be uh, weekly prayer groups or life groups or home churches or park church or courses that you run or just your devotions morning by morning, they all immerse us in the larger meaning that God gave his people to make sense of the world we live in. Now, We believe that this is the true story of the world. And it is within this story that we find ourselves, that we find our individual meaning and our collective identity as the people of God. The intent of Scripture then is to tell the true story of the whole world, to lay down an understanding of how and why we exist, the purpose of life, and to introduce us to the author, the creator of this life. The construct uh, of meaning helps us to see the world rightly, but then also act rightly within this world. From the largest event to the smallest choices that we have to make, it all finds its purpose within the larger story. One Hindu scholar uh, of world religions once said to Leslie Newbegin, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And in, and anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India we don't need anymore. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of the universal history, the history of the whole creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as responsible actor in history. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. Newbegin himself then put it like this, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of human history. And that is answering the question, what is the real story of which my life story is a part? Now, we may either embrace the story that Jesus and the scriptures tell us and believe this, or we may reject it and spurn it. But one thing we may not do is reshape the Bible to suit our own private religious preferences. See, that's where today's letters come in. They point out where the churches were still aligned with the story of King Jesus and his restoration of the world. And they also show where they were exchanging the way of Jesus for other ways for their own preferences, or maybe slowly drifting away from the story, or they are deceived and believed that it might not be true. These letters uh, and this book of Revelation make sense if the understanding is that we have a a righteous king on the throne who made us out of love and amidst our rebellion and our pride, he still finds a way to restore us through the self-giving love that he brings for his glory and for the joy of all people. That's his story. And the result 
of his story is that the rightful king is on the throne and all people can live in the joy that comes from that. Now, this is what we see in these letters, these parts. We see a revelation of Jesus. We see an affirmation for what they are living in. We see a correction for where they're missing it. We see a path of change. We see a consequence for not changing. And then we see a reward promised for those who are victorious. Now, this letter, these letters are particularly important because we have to remember that Jesus intended for the world to see him through seeing us, through seeing his people. We are his body in the midst of the world. And therefore, wherever the church is, wherever you and I are, in the midst of the people of the world, that is where Christ is in their midst. What do they experience by their interactions by me, with me? These are important questions. And therefore, it is possible that we proclaim a king without the evidence of the kingdom fruit being born in our lives. It's important. The second reason is because we want to take shortcuts to the kingdom of God. In other words, we want the fruit of the kingdom without submitting to the king who reigns in this kingdom. So let's start with the first piece, revelation of Jesus. Jesus, again, in this letter, as in the others, he reveals himself to these two churches that we're looking at today in ways that relate to the situation they find themselves in. To Pergamum, he says, these are the words of him who has the, the sharp, double-edged sword. And to Thyatira, he says, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. God brings some severe judgments in these letters to these churches, and therefore he reveals himself as one who is the rightful judge and the righteous judge, and therefore they should listen to him. He comes to judge those who say the right things, but compromise in the way they live. And he comes to judge those who want the right righteous uh, acts, the deeds, the fruit, but refuse to submit to the king. And so in Pergamum, he mentions this two-edged, or two Pergamum in the letter, he mentions this two-edged sword. And Pergamum was the city in Asia Minor that was given the authority by Rome to be the governing seat of Asia Minor. In other words, they were given authority to execute judgments for their entire area called Asia Minor in the day. They executed people without getting authority because they already were given it. Now, in Thyatira... It says uh, that it was a small city. It wasn't a very big or influential city, but it had one thing going for it. It was its bronze works was phenomenal. And on its coins, it had the image of Apollos Terminaeus, the patron deity of bronze, uh, of the bronze trade. And on the same coin on the other side, the in inscription, the son of God for Caesar. So now we see why uh, Jesus introduces himself the way he does. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He is saying, I am the righteous judge. 
the situation you find yourself in, I am equal to the moment and to what you need. Secondly, he brings a word of affirmation to Pergamum. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. To Thyatira, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Man, These are two interesting words, a word of encouragement. I know where you live. It's where Satan rules. That's a brutal word. That should wake them up and get their attention. Now, this is possibly what it means, according to the scholars. Pergamon, because it had the first temple dedicated to Caesar in Asia Minor and was a rabid promoter of the imperial cult a rabid promoter of the imperial cult. This is what could be meant by there is another throne, a throne of Satan in your midst. It could also be the physical conglomerate of heathen temples that was found in the city in one particular place, one of which was uh, was dedicated to Asclepius, the god of healing whose insignia was a snake twirled around a staff. This is still the medical symbol today. And of course, it's a reference to Satan, the serpent. So this could be too, but more likely the, the, the seat of Satan or, the, or Satan's throne as referenced here refers to the ungodly government or authority or temples of idols, all that play a part in the authority that is being exercised in the world they lived in. Any authority that is not the authority of Christ, in other words. The story of creation and the story of our world, the true story of our world, is a story of battling authority, ultimately. It is a a real example of dual authority. We see in Genesis, God gives his creation what? Shared dominion, shared authority to rule if they rule in his way. But they don't trust God's authority. And so the, the serpent comes and says, did God really say? In other words, the authority of God was undermined. In Genesis. Then we see the prophets like Isaiah proclaim the good news. And what they say the good news is this your God reigns. Then Jesus comes and he says, I am bringing my good news. And here's the good news the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he teaches us to pray, he says, We should pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. The whole story of creation from Genesis all the way through Psalms, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and right here in Revelation was about competing authority. And unless we plug Revelation and these letters into that meaning, we will not understand it. We will think it is just the wrath of God poured out, an angry God up there that I don't want anything to do with. Revelation warns us that exchanging God's authority for another authority has some real, real dire consequences. These churches have the upper hand on us because they faced the real threat of persecution. 
Antipas was one being celebrated among them for being martyred. They could literally die by saying Jesus is king. Our problem in our day is that battling authorities or spiritual wars probably just an idea out there that we are aware of and we don't necessarily take it seriously enough. See, when I grew up in the 80s, I know that's hard to believe. Um, uh, there was a spiritual awakening, a, uh, an awakening to spiritual warfare. Uh, and there was a saying that uh, is pretty popular that was saying that that person, you could say it about someone saying, they find a demon behind every bush. There's something wrong, something spiritual that they find with, with everything. And, and there were some exaggerated circumstances and, and, and examples of this. I remember uh, in our town, there were people exercising uh, th- these these spiritual warfare practices, and in one house, they they walked into a house and uh, they discerned that there was a demon in the house, uh, and ultimately through prayer, discerned that the demon was in the coffee table. And so they they prayed from one corner. They they went both sides of the coffee table to the other corner, and when they believed that they had cornered the the, the demon in the corner of the coffee table, they had chopped off that corner and burnt it. As a, as a practice. Now, whether that was right or true, it's hard to judge, but because of things like that, we have completely reversed and we're almost hardly aware that there is a spiritual battle going on at all. My parents, uh, as I grew up in the ministry that, that they were a part of, faced some very real things. We, we have seen with our eyes demons leaving a person's body and healing coming to others and uh, broken bodies being healed and blind eyes seeing literally. And we were astounded at the things that, that have happened because there is a, a, a war, the physical manifestations of a spiritual war. They, they faced uh, uh, people slaughtering um, animals as cursed on our front stoop because uh, there were people highly offended by the spiritual war that was being waged. But now in a post-Christian secular world, uh, it's a battle just, just to be aware of the very real spiritual war. Most of us go through our days, day by day, without even thinking that I'm not just fighting the circumstance that's happening here, but there there might be something at war for my soul. Whatever we face, we have to remember our fight is not against flesh and blood and our weapons are not of the flesh. It is the truth of Christ. It is his death, his resurrection and him seated on the throne in which we find our victory, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, the story that scripture gives us, the meaning and the truth in scripture, we immerse ourselves in it, the true story of the world. And every time I do that, every time I give myself to the word of God, shaping my heart and my mind to God's uh, truth of Jesus as king coming over my life, I am putting myself into the truth of that story. And I am finding that the king and his victory becomes mine too. This morning I was reading Psalm 56 and this was so encouraging to me in my own devotions. He says, when I am afraid, I trust in you. I put my trust in you in the moments of my anxiety and fear for I know my God is for me. The story of scripture shaping our hearts day after day. The affirmation in this text is beautiful. It says that 
Church, you, you live under great pressure and yet you remain dedicated to Jesus. There is a growing energy and, and, and urgency in you for God's kingdom and for his fame. And he affirms this in them. They were involved in sacrificial ministry for the sake of others. And what's more, their works were increasing and not decreasing, kind of like uh, the opposite of the, the rebuke to the Ephesians. Now, more than before, you have not lost your first love. Your love has increased. But then he brings this correction. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Yo, that escalated quickly. The two things the Jerusalem council asked Gentile believers to pay attention to, they seem to be disregarding. They disregard the grace that they have been shown and they lose their distinctiveness. In Thyatira, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Now, let's, let's be clear. John doesn't identify Rome with Satan. This authority is not Satan, but he does imply that Satan uses Rome to do his bidding. The question of serving God in a context like this is this. How do I live in such a city? What practices should we adopt and what practices should we reject? What does compromise look like in this context? Amidst all of these, it seems like God's permitted flexibility has made its way all the way into cultural assimilation. And God is, uh, is asking them, pointing it out, showing, uh, showing them this misgiving. What cultural assimilations go unquestioned in my practice and my thinking? I have to ask these things. The two villains that are mentioned here quickly, Balaam and Jezebel. Balak, king of Moab, hires Balaam, the prophet, to curse Israel. And Balaam finds that um, he is physically unable to curse Israel. For some reason, miraculous, he literally can't speak. So he goes back to Balak because he still wants his reward for this. And he says, here's another plan that could still satisfy what you want. And he recruits Moabite women to seduce Israelite men. And therefore the men commit adultery with Moabite women, and their reason is, well, it's just kind of like the, the culture over here. It's just how people do things over here. It's part of us being here. And so he seduces them, not overtly, but this subverted uh, seduction into giving up God as king. Jezebel, on the other hand, seduces the people to forgo their allegiance to God, and she represents a master manipulator. By the way, in our culture, we have, uh, just as an aside, easily labeled woman that we just have some sort of conflict with as a Jezebel, even though she might not represent at all what this Jezebel in Scripture represents. Uh, but we very, very seldom uh, walk around going, oh, he's a real Balaam, or he's a real Ahab, or yeah, he's, he's, he's a Jezebel. He manipulates situations. Just an aside. 
That's just a shout out to the misidentified Jezebels uh, out there. Ultimately, both of these seem to seduce them into sexual immorality. And that sexual immorality is representative of prolific spiritual adultery. It is the representation that they have exchanged God's authority for another. See, if the story we are to believe is the true story of the world, then marriage and sexuality is supposed to be a signpost, the symbol of God's faithfulness to his people, his covenant relationship with us. Our marriages, my marriage, represents a greater spiritual reality. And therefore, in foregoing the responsibility that we are supposed to be the display people who show the world who God is, we forsake a covenant love and the world needs to see what God's covenant love is like. And we become misrepresentations of God to the world. God can't have that. He has to be serious about that. And so he, uh, uh, he, he reminds us um, that, that when Moses misrepresented him by striking the rock twice instead of in obedience speaking to the rock, he misrepresented the path of salvation to God's people. And, and the consequences were dire. <laughs> he, he misrepresented how salvation would happen and he misled the people of God through his misrepresentation. And his result, his consequence was that he missed out on his kingdom inheritance. See, my singleness, my sexuality, my marriage, whatever place you find in, it matters because we are the representation of God to a world and his love to a faithful God who keeps his covenant promise. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says, he has a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. And we get to represent that to the world. Married love is a signpost of the love between creator and creation. And in both these churches, they were foregoing their responsibility to represent God and to draw from his covenant love. They were finding other ways congruent with the ways of the culture to be satisfied. And when they exchange God's way of satisfaction for other ways, they have to also deal with the, with the consequences. See, compromising with the world just to avoid suffering or to achieve success is committing a type of adultery. It's committing unfaithfulness to the Lord your God. In contrast, the Ephesian church was weakening in its acts of love, yet faithful to judge false teachers harshly. And people in Thyatira were growing in their love, but too tolerant of false doctrines. Both extremes must be avoided in the church. Unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise are both despised by God. Unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise are both despised by God. Believers today, we face the temptation to achieve personal advancement by ungodly compromise. We proclaim the king without having the kingdom fruit, or we seek the kingdom results 
without the king's authority. So very quickly, quickly, the last few things. A path to change. God graciously reaches to the far-spanning errors of our ways. Far as the curse is found, the, the, the old hymn says. God does not judge harshly or unmercifully. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. And so he doesn't just come and punish. He gives a warning over and over. He gives a way out. He makes that way possible through his son, Jesus. And here again, God offers a way out of the brokenness to Pergamum. He says, repent, therefore. In other words, confess and turn from these things. To Thyatira, he says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Quickly, repentance has to include at least these things, acknowledging our sin. We have to give it a name. We have to call it out. Secondly, mourning and lament. We have to be truly sorry for disobeying God and choosing another way of satisfaction. Thirdly, we have to resolve to stop. We can't just say sorry and then carry on the same things. We should acknowledge and lament personal sin. We should desire change and we should be aware of larger cultural sins that we have been complicit to. Injustices to minorities. Church, there's currently an increase of violence against Asian Americans, just to mention one. It should bother us. It should bother us that this is happening and we should lament and acknowledge and repent and try to change. We should seek change. We should repent for the greed of our nation, the limitless consumerism, neglecting the frail and the poor, the the indulgence that we live in so easily. And we should remember that it is God's kindness that leads us to that repentance, not repentance that leads us to God's kindness. See, these words, these seemingly harsh words to the churches are actually kind words, acts of grace, a severe mercy showing us the way in which we are losing out in the deep satisfaction that Jesus brings. There is also a consequence for not changing. In Pergamum, it says, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He speaks of the judgment that is to come to those who do not repent. In Thyatira, it says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unrepentant people will find out what it is like to live in opposition to God himself. Not because God opposes us, but because we have chosen to oppose God. And he invites us back in. In Matthew 23, Jesus warns those who look religious, who do the religious things. They sound religious, but they don't act justly and they do not show mercy. Let us heed his warning. God has severe consequences because he loves us so passionately. A severe mercy. There is a reward for those who obey. In Pergamum, it says, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Thyatira, it says, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one, uh, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give the one the bright morning star. He promises firstly satisfaction. 
the secret hidden manna from heaven. It is the, the, the sustenance and the satisfaction that can only come from God when we look for those things in other places. When you try to find your satisfaction through compromise, you end up being very dissatisfied. I will give you the miraculous, sustaining nourishment and satisfaction if you hold to my word and if you bow to my name. Secondly, he promises intimacy. That white stone was given to people as an invitation, a ticket that they could use to get into something like a wedding feast. Now, if you go down to Trader Joe's uh, downtown uh, Brooklyn, you are most likely going to stand in a line outside of Trader Joe's. But there are many doors that you can get to that Trader Joe's. And so people try to cut that line. And they go to the back door and they go down the bottom and they get to the door to get into Trader Joe's. And the person at the door says, where is your ticket? And they realize you can't take a different road in unless you come in the authorized door and you've stood in the line because that's where they hand you a ticket that gets you into the door in the basement where Trader Joe's is. This stone is handed to people with a name on it that only the person who receives it knows. And it refers to intimacy being invited personally by the VIP uh, person at 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 the wedding. So Jesus is inviting them and saying, you will be given access. You will be given what? Me. You'll be given my presence. You will have intimacy that you can only gain by my invitation. So satisfaction and intimacy. And then the last is they're given authority and a renewed purpose. It says this is from the one who has. This is a a Genesis restoration. Restoration in the shared kingdom. Restoring the mandate to govern, to have dominion again. This is a beautiful promise that if you submit to my authority and you change your ways, you will be given a share in the kingdom and you will reign again with me the way it was supposed to be in Genesis. And then the reference to the morning star is beautiful again because it affirms the intimacy with the creator. Jesus calls himself in Revelation the bright morning star. In other words, he rewards us by giving himself to us. Church in Ephesus, we learned to the, to the letter of the church in Ephesus, we, we, uh, we learned that we can lose our first love by, by stopping to act in a loving way. To Smyrna, we, we learned that we are in danger of giving up during the hard times. To Pergamum, we learned we could incrementally compromise and slowly shift our hope f- uh, for joy into pseudo-saviors. And to Thyatira, we learned that tolerating competing ideas to God and his kingdom will lead to our own pain and harm. So we end these these weeks with, with a letter that is written to our church in Brooklyn. And I just want to read it to you. So if you could just kind of sit back and take a moment and receive these words as if written to you written to you where you live out your faith. Hear these words. To the church in Brooklyn, from your earliest days, you have been a community marked by hospitality. You have offered a generous welcome to many, inviting them to be known and to belong. You have sought to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. 
I have seen you walk with those who have been wounded or were disenchanted with faith. I know you can celebrate well and you have given thanks. This is all reflective of my heart and the life of Jesus. However, too often your eyes have drifted back to your surroundings. Too often your difficulty becomes entitlement and your celebration becomes indulgence. Do not forget, I am the one who satisfies your soul. Do not be sold the seat at a false table. I have called you apart and as salt and light. Do not accept the false gods of craving or lust and the misguided directions they offer. I am your satisfaction and your rest. Do you not know that the distinctiveness with which you live is crucial to your witness? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but are of the world. Consecrate yourself to me. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Spiritual authority is rooted in personal holiness. Remember that I am a good father and I know what my children need. Trust my provision day by day and see if I will not satisfy you with good things. Let us pray. God, we hear your words today, your words in Scripture, your words to our very souls, your words to our church as you call us and remind us that every day as we immerse ourselves in you and your story, we draw life from the meaning and the purpose for which you created us. Stir in our hearts true repentance. Come and bring to us by your spirit the conviction needed for us to change and to seek you wholeheartedly. And thank you for the deep satisfaction that you and you alone bring us. We are so grateful. Amen.